Welcome to the Lessons in Real Estate Show, bringing you information directly from industry leaders in multifamily and commercial real estate. Each week, Anthony Pinto interviews top multifamily experts and digs into the hard lessons learned on their pathways to success. We get real to give you a more holistic picture and help you avoid pitfalls others won't tell you about. He will teach you about raising money, growing your portfolio, and attracting investors to your cause. And now your host, Anthony Pinto. Hey guys, I want to take a second and thank you for listening. This show could not have gotten off the ground if it wasn't for your dedication, continuing support, and constructive feedback. And a special thanks goes out to Whitney Sewell from the Real Estate Syndication Show. He has provided tremendous value in setting up this podcast, and he has a kick-ass podcast to boot. But you're here for the show, so let's get into it. Hey guys, what's up? I'm your host, Anthony Pinto, and you are listening to the Lessons in Real Estate show, where we bring you lessons uh, from industry leaders in the multifamily and commercial real estate realm. Today, we have a different guest than normally, and uh, I'll let you figure out why here in a bit. Brandon, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate you bringing me on here. It's, It's fun. Of course, of course. So I've, uh, I've known Brandon Cox for a few months now. He's been working with the ADPI guys for for a while. It's just how we met. And uh, he's my go-to guy for all things taxes. So Brandon, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm an enrolled agent, which is a federally credentialed tax professional. Uh, I own BMC Accounting LLC, and I've got a, a couple other employees as well that work for me. I got one that just, uh, she's a military spouse, CPA, that just went to Okinawa, Japan. I've got another military spouse that's in Spain, and I got another guy that works for me out in Boston. So I've, I've gotten quite a geographical reach here, and we've got clients all over the U.S. I really specialize in federal taxation, and I we have clients in I think forty eight states right now. There's only about two that I haven't hit. I think like New Hampshire and one other state. I can't even remember, but we uh, we deal particularly with small business and real estate investors. Awesome. Perfect. Well, great that you, you're uh, especially qualified then to talk about, uh, you know, the changes that have kind of occurred over this last year. Yeah, so um, I, I think bringing in this new year is a good time to start talking about taxes as everyone starts freaking out. Um, <laughs> they're going to, okay, what do I need to start pulling and offer to my investors? And, you know, what do I need to get myself? So, um, right. you know, so the tax code kind of changed, uh, I think, into 2018 because I, I ran into a few issues with trying to figure out my taxes, especially like on the military side um, right. with the new tax changes. So can you kind of touch on that a little bit of what the big big changes were and what we should really know about? So any particular area that you're looking for? Because this that's a pretty broad. We uh, let's just talk real right. estate in terms sure. of real estate investing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the IRS came out with some new regulations for the Section 199A deduction uh, right at the tail end. And what that is, is that allows rental real estate to receive a up to 20% income deduction, income tax deduction. So the reason why that there's special regulations for rental real estate in particular is because it's a passive trade, no matter how much you participate in it, unless you're a real estate professional. So this section 199A deduction was meant for what's called section 162. So this is businesses, active trades and businesses. So like your podcasting being an active trade of business, my business is an active trade of business. So it's material participation. So real estate had to have special guidelines for it. And they finally released what they were going to be. So you had to have over 250 hours of personal services provided to the rental activity. And those can be things like uh, advertising, working with independent contractors um, and employees, uh, buying supplies for the property, 
uh, screening tenant applications, collecting rent, daily operation and management, uh, which would include like keeping your own books or keeping contact with all your suppliers and vendors. So that's one part of it. And the next one is that you have to make a disclosure on the tax return too that says, hey, we are in connection with you know, this regulation to say that we are allowed to take up to 20% deduction. Now, of course, this is only going to benefit you, obviously, if you only have taxable profit. So a lot of times with tax, uh, with, with real estate rentals, you'll have a tax loss, but you're cash positive. So what this becomes really beneficial for then is short-term rentals. So short-term rentals typically turn out to be a cash positive and tax positive thing because the per night, you know, rate per capita is, is much higher than a long-term rental, right? So that's something to, to keep in mind is that, you know, there's certain guidelines that you need to meet for that. Um, another uh, interesting thing came up, but there's been a couple uh, real estate professional tax court cases and other real estate uh, tax court cases that came about in 2018. Uh, one was Connor v. Commissioner and the other one would be uh, Morello v. Commissioner. So there's there's been quite a bit when dealing with real estate. So Connor v. Commissioner was addressing whether or not real estate generated the sale of ordinary income or capital gains. So that kind of deals the question of, is this investor or dealer? So a lot of times people that are investing in real estate, particularly like land, for example, uh, come across that issue, whether they're considered a dealer versus an investor. Those are treated totally different. You know, with a uh, ordinary income, if you're just a sole proprietor, single member LLC, that gain could be subject to self-employment tax. Whereas if you're an investor, not a dealer, you're investing the property in hopes for it to appreciate so you sell it later, that's only subject to long-term capital gains tax, which could be 0, 15, or 20%, much, much less than ordinary income. So solving those kind of cases can, can be very impactful for real estate investors. Wow. Okay. Well, so you gave us a lot to, to talk about there. So. Um, <laughs> So in terms of it being a passive trade, so what would make it, what types of things would make it go from being an active or a passive trade when you're doing something? Sure. Okay. So section 469, the internal revenue code states that pretty much no matter how much, even if you materially participate in the business, you're still considered a passive activity for rental real estate. However, there is a small clause for it called the real estate professional. And to be considered a real estate professional doesn't mean like you have an MLS listing or you're a real estate agent or a broker or any of that stuff. It's strictly a tax classification. And you have to have over 750 hours of services provided to real estate activities. Um, and then you also have to have more than one half of all services that you provide to all trades and businesses or sources of income have to come from real estate. And then to go even further in this is if you work as an employee for a business, you have to own at least 5% of that business for any of those hours to count towards it. So if you make all, all of those thresholds, then you're allowed to count those hours towards the real estate professional and you get rid of the whole passive concept. And that's really important uh, because with rental real estate, it's, it's essentially a tax shelter without actually registering as a tax shelter, uh, mainly due to depreciation. Right. So that's kind of one of the bread and butter of rental real estate. So with rental real estate, you're able to take up to twenty five thousand dollars in deductions of I'm sorry, up to twenty five thousand dollars in tax loss against the ordinary income. Granted that you don't have more than one hundred thousand dollars in that income. And then once you reach one hundred fifty, it's gone completely. But when you're a real estate professional, none of that exists at all. Those thresholds and limitations don't apply to you. So it'd be just like a normal business. If you lose forty thousand dollars a year, well, that forty thousand dollars a year in tax loss goes against all your other sources of income. Interesting. Okay. So you kind of touched on the 250 hours that you would have to law to, um, you know, to, 
put towards your rental activity. So how does, how does that come into play with? So, so let's say that, um, you know, I'm just getting started with real estate investing and I mm-hmm. buy a house that, you know, or it's called a quad and I house hack it. And I put, sure. I do all the work myself, you know, I do all the advertising, I find all the, the tenants, do all the leasing, deal with all the sure. issues like that. And then I rack up 300, you know, hours over the first year. And then I decide I don't want to do that anymore. So I switched to a property manager. You know, how does, how does that play into the tax time? Sure. So in that case, you would be, if you had a taxable profit, you'd be qualified on, you know, with, with that information, you'd be qualified for the section 199A deduction. So like, let's say you had, uh, you know, $10,000 in tax profit for the year. You're only going to pay income taxes on probably 8,000 of it. Now that won't be enough hours to get you to qualify as a real estate professional. So that's the 750 plus hours. Uh, so 250 is really called active trader participation. It's just you actively participating enough that it's like, okay, it's not entirely passive, but it's certainly not material participation. It's kind of that middle threshold. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you're talking about the real estate professional, um, does it have to be used specifically? Can it be a spouse? Like how does that connection oh, kind of, how do you use that? Yeah. So if your spouse qualifies for it, it will benefit the both of you guys. If you married file joint, however, you guys can't use each other's hours to make up one considered real estate professional. So like if me and my wife were going to do uh, to get into real estate and let's say I put in 400 hours and she puts in 400 hours, neither one of us met the qualification for real estate professional. We cannot take, you know, the, the advantages, the benefits of it. Now, if she took uh, 850 hours of real estate, you know, uh, services and more than one half of all services she provides is to real estate, and I only did like 10. Well, even then, we both can still benefit from the real estate professional status based off of at least that information. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So 750 hours a year comes out to be about 14 hours a week or two hours a day. So, um, mm-hmm. so let's say I'm a, I'm a weekend warrior with real estate investing and I have a W2 job and, you know, sure. I get, I'm able to get those two hours a day and I can log it really well, but I still have that W2 job and, and real estate's still my side hustle, if you will. Can I still sure. claim real estate professional? No. So what you would lose is the one part of the element that says more than one half of all services have to be provided to real estate. So unless your W-2 position is in real estate and you own at least 5% of that business, then it doesn't do you any good. So like if let's say you're, you're military, right? So that's a great example. If you're military and you're doing some house hacking with quad, wherever you're stationed, you're not going to be able to take advantage of the real estate professional. Now, one of the things that that is still going to be you know available for you is that up to $25,000 in tax loss that you can take against other income. However, let's say that you do go over the threshold of like 150,000, right? Let's say you do military, both uh, officers or something, right? So you guys are up high enough. What will happen is you can't take any of those losses against your income for the year, but they carry over from year to year to year until you end up having taxable profit to offset that, you know, and then uh, one of the other large, large benefits of the real estate professional is once you become a real estate professional, all these years, let's say you do have disallowed losses and they just kind of accumulate and carry over. When you become a real estate professional, they, they hit and they become, you know, deductible then. So you could have years worth of disallowed losses, become a real estate professional 10 years later, and then that could benefit you right all at one time. Interesting. Okay. So, so let's say that I work as a, you know, I decided to get out of the military and I go and, and work on real estate full time. Um, and I decided to be a commercial real estate broker. Um, mm-hmm. But on the side, you know, I passively invest in multifamily 
for example. And so sure. let's say I get, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in profits or in cash flow, I guess we'll call it from the passive side of things, right? And then I mm -hmm. make another hundred thousand or so doing the broker side of things. Um, but I have them in two separate companies. Like I have, you know, right. a whole company that just deals with the passive income side. Um, and then I have, you know, my, obviously my other company doing the broker side. Um, can I combine those two incomes together? Can I separate them to have them taxed differently? Or am I just kind of no, so set myself up for fraud there? <laughs> <laughs> no, so that's a good question. Now, there's there's several activities um, underneath the umbrella of real estate. When the IRS says real estate, there's several activities they talk about. There's develop, redevelop, construct, reconstruct, uh, rent, there's lease, there's manage and operate, there's broker. And then there's dealing. So there's several different activities and each one of those are a separate real estate activity. So if you are making well over 750 hours in the broker side as part of your, your business, right? Well, then that already gets you over your 750 hours. And then so long as you material participate in another real estate activity, then you're definitely going to be able to take those tax losses. So that's one of the issues that a lot of people have with section 469. The real estate professional is probably the most litigated part out of 469 in the tax court. And it's because people will usually kind of misunderstand it. So like, let's say you are considered a real estate professional um, and you put 750 hours into brokering, but you only did like 200 hours in rental real estate. Then you didn't meet the 750 hours at least for the real rental part. So the rental part, if there's any tax losses, you're not going to get over the $25,000 allowance. Interesting. Okay. So, <laughs> So let's say I decide to, I want to be a passive investor and, you know, I, I give a hundred thousand dollars to, you know, two different, let's say two different multifamily syndications. Right. Sure. Um, but I'm, I'm a strictly a limited partner on that deal. Right. But I consider myself a real estate professional based off of X, Y, Z. Right. So on that side of it, I'm not putting in hours being active on that deal. Right. And, right. you know, I'm getting income coming in from the passive side, but I'm still, you know, making money on the broker side. Can I still claim real estate professional on that on that passive income, even though I'm not actually active doing anything? You know, um, you know, doing rent roll or uh, doing anything property management wise, finding sure. the deal, any of any of that stuff. So as long you know, you could still take the tax losses up to twenty five thousand dollars on that. Uh, but since you didn't materially participate in the rental activity of real estate, that's what's going to get hemmed up and make you lose the. You don't really lose a real estate professional status because you still qualify for the status. It's just a one time kind of thing, and then every year you obviously have to continue to make the status. But if you don't materially participate in you know all of the activities, you only materially participate in one activity. That's the part that it benefits you. If you materially participate, it's kind of a tough thing to say. And several different activities, let's say you do develop and you also construct and then you also rent and you do a thousand hours each between each one of those activities, then yeah, you would definitely be able to, to use whatever benefit you could out of the real estate professional status for rental real estate. Rental real estate's really the one that it really matters for when you think about it, right? Because if like, let's say I own a construction company, and let's say I have massive losses because I bought a bunch of new equipment, right? So I bonus depreciated things on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, well, obviously that's an active trader business. It's going to be rare that the IRS is probably going to come ask me, why did I claim real estate professional? It's a material participation activity. Rental real estate is kind of a special little niche in the real estate section. So it gets scrutinized a little bit more than, than the others really. Interesting. Okay. So, so just to be clear, let's say that, you know, I put a hundred thousand dollars in and I make, 
you know, $50,000 back in, in depreciation and all these other tax benefits, right? Can I, mm-hmm. but I am not a real estate professional in terms of that rental real estate as, as a passive right. investor. Can I still claim that 50000 or would I have to apply it next year? You know, just take 25000 each year. Sure. So if that was your total loss for the first year was 50,000, you'd be able to take 25,000 right off the bat. And then the remaining portion would carry over next year. So let's say in the following year, because there was like a cost segregation study and that's why there was so much depreciation and whatnot. Right. So what would happen is like, let's say next year you have $10,000 in taxable gain from rental real estate. Well, then you would only pay taxes. You know, uh, you wouldn't pay tax on any of it because you have 10,000 minus 25,000. You still have 15,000 left to carry over to the next year so on and so forth. So you don't lose it. It just gets carried over. Okay. And then that applies to all the properties I have, right? It's not just, you know, this property gives me 10,000, this one gives me 25,000 and I can't take 25,000 each one, right? It's total income. Right. And then you, what you would want to do too um, is make an election on the tax return to aggregate all rental real estate activities as one interest. So that way you wouldn't have to materially participate in one property, the next property, the next property, you can just aggregate all of them. So that way you, would, you could spread those hours amongst everything and then you could spread those losses against everything too. Got it. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to want to switch gears here a little bit because I kind of yeah. want to dig into your knowledge some. So um, it's kind of along the same lines. So um, so let's say that I am interested in being a general partner or a limited partner on a multifamily deal, or, or it could be, mm-hmm. it could be storage units, whatever, multifamily or uh, mobile homes. So what are the type of, or different tax benefits I can expect to see? Um, or really, I guess that uh, makes it worthwhile to invest in, in real estate, rental real estate. Okay. So uh, I will say it's a little probably different between general partner and, and limited partner, because if you're, if you're just an LP, you're, you're pretty much put your money in and you're essentially quote, you're not really receiving dividends, but that's kind of what it's like. You're just receiving money back on your investment. Uh, so you don't really have much control over any of the other deductions or things that happens on the actual tax return for that partnership. Right. Okay. But if you're a general partner, you probably have a lot of say and power on whether or not certain things can happen within the partnership. You know, so as an LP, you're pretty much going to make sure I would I would want to make sure and do your due diligence on the GPs and make sure that they one they know what they're doing with real estate uh, investing, what their intentions are. Are they going to cost seg this? Are they going to 1031 exchange this property? Are they going to sell this property? Because these are all things that can come back and have major tax implications for you. You know, like let's say they do a cost segregation study and then for some reason the guy sells it the next year, right? All those benefits you just got are going to come back at you anyway as unrecaptured 1250 and depreciation recapture for section 1245. So you're going to pay taxes on that. So that's something that you definitely want to know as an LP. Knowledge will be the most important aspect, I think, of getting into real estate. And then, and then GP too, and I would say, especially if you're going to be really participating in, in the project, is to make sure that the people that you're with um, have some experience in the backing. So GP would, would definitely be a much more... I would say trustworthy position than simply an LP, right? Because an LP is just going to give you the money call it a day. GP, you got to make decisions about what's going to happen with that property. Whether you guys are going to do a long-term hold, get other investors, what kind of amounts are you going to distribute out to those investors that are LPs? You know, because every, you know, if I put in $50,000, the thought process is I should at least get that back, that money back at some time, right? Like sometime soon, at least anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's something you got to know is how are you going to make your investors happy? If your investors aren't happy, you're not going to be <laughs> really well liked probably in the real estate industry. You know? Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, 
Okay, so yeah, I, I like that part that you're talking about as an LP. You kind of really have to have uh, have the knowledge, as I know a, a lot of people talk about, um, you know, multifamily and really real estate investing in general being this huge tax benefit. Like, you know, it's tax free uh, cash flow, and you get all these benefits, blah blah blah, right? And you know, that's that's great up front, but mm-hmm. as a limited partner, um, you know, there's a lot of different things that could happen that you really don't have a say in, right? Um, so let's, let's kind of dig into some of these terms because you kind of, um, you know, went over them pretty quickly. So sure. uh, let's start with uh, 1031 exchange. Can you just kind of explain what that actually means? Okay. So uh, in its most basic sense, it's essentially taking basically the proceeds from the sale of one property and immediately taking that money into the next property that you're going to get or a swap of properties. It's called a like kind exchange. Most commonly what it, uh, what'll happen is you'll have a property that you want to get rid of and you'll go to a qualified intermediary. And those can be found at like most financial institutions have them or certain companies are just, that's all they do is qualified intermediary, which is probably what I would recommend. Uh, Cause there's very strict regulations and policies within a 1031 exchange. Like I don't facilitate them. I, I just, you know, advise people on the tax implications of them. There are people that actually facilitate this 1031 exchange. So what would happen is you take this property that you have, you're going to title it over to the qualified intermediary. And then from there, you've got 45 days that you need to identify which property it is that you're going to essentially swap, right? Or whatever proceeds you get from the sale of this property, you're going to go into that next property. And then you also have 180 days from the day that you change over the title or this is the part that gets people over too is, or uh, the due date of the tax return, whichever is sooner. So if 180 days is going to put you past whatever the due date for the tax return is going to be, which would be April 15th, generally for most people, unless it's a partnership, uh, you need to file an extension because if you don't, you're going to lose that, um, (laughs) that qualified 1031 exchange. You'll have gone over that limitation of actually transferring the property over so, so making sure that you are going to have enough time to first identify the property and second to transfer all the assets back into the next one is going to be very important. But that's really what a 1031 exchange generally is. And what it is, it defers all of the tax gains that you would recognize on it. So like a good example is let's say I had a multifamily property that was worth like 200000 when I bought it. I depreciated it by like $80,000. Typically, when you sell that property or dispose of it, you're going to have at least $80,000 in uncaptured 1250 gains to pay taxes on. And then, of course, you have, uh, you know, capital, long-term capital gains tax to pay on any basically appreciation on that. But with the 1031 exchange, you don't have that. It defers it. So it's not that it goes away or it's gone for good. It's only gone for good if you never actually sell that property. If you continue 1031 exchange, it can be a really great strategy. And I always tell people a 1031 exchange in my eyes, really should be a death plan. It should be something you do until you're dead. You know, because if like, let's say 40 years down the road, after you've done this for, you know, so long and you sell that last property and don't do it in a way that, you know, within another 1031 exchange, you might have millions of dollars tax windfall come hit you at once. And chances are pretty good that you're probably not going to have the cash wherewithal to pay that. Okay. Interesting. So, um, so then as a, so, okay. So just kind of recap. So, Mm-hmm. Um, let's say that I have a property, you know, $200,000, I go find a qualified intermediary company and they kind of handle mm-hmm. a lot of these, these details and, and keep the, right. you know, keep the money. So I don't, you know, it's not in hand with me. So I then have 45 days to find the property, which what is, what does that mean? Do I have to have anything official? So that would be the paperwork that would be drawn up with the qualified intermediary. There would be some documents filed and ensure that that is actually the property you want, or this is the property that you want. 
Um, and essentially that'll be kind of begin the process of getting the property transferred. Okay. So do I have a certain number of properties that I can have? Can I just put like, you know, 20 properties on this list and hand it into the, into uh, the qualified intermediary? Yeah. So there's not, a, there's not a limitation on how many properties you can do a 1031 exchange on. Um, definitely it'll be reportable on the tax return for that year. So that way they can, the IRS can essentially keep track of the basis. But as long as you're working with a qualified intermediary, they're going to make sure all those minute details and small little clauses are met with. This is definitely not something that you would want to handle by yourself. It doesn't actually say anywhere in any regulation that I've seen that you have to use one, but you would not be very smart not to use a qualified intermediary. Okay. Got it. All right. So 45 days to find a property and 180 days to close on the property or until the tax return due date, right? Right. Yep. Whichever sooner. So if that tax return due date's coming before 180 days and you don't think you'll get it done in time, file an extension. That will save it. it. Okay. Perfect. Um, So kind of touching this from the syndication side. So as a general partner, can I still take the 1031 benefits as a 1031 exchange? Can I still... Uh, benefit from that in a syndication as just a limited partner? Sure. So even if you're a limited partner in this investment, if they do a 1031 exchange on the property that you guys are investing in into another property, you're still going to have all these deferred gains that are likely going to arise from this, mostly from depreciation recaptures. So you're still not going to have any extra taxes to pay on at the time. And they'll either you sell out your interest or they sell out the property or whatever happens with it, right? So as long as you stick with it, there's not going to be any immediate tax implications for it. Because depreciation is it's bittersweet. It's great at first, and it sucks at the end because you have to pay it all back, right? So And then it's even worse if you don't take it at all because you're going to pay for it twice. But um, So, I mean, as a limited partner in 1031 exchange, it's still going to be fine. You're still not going to have any immediate tax consequences. Got it. So let's say that you know I get into this property. Five years later, we decide to... Um, sell it into a 1031 and some other property, but I don't want to buy, I don't want to purchase that property. I don't want to put my money with that syndication anymore. If I decided to sell out of that share, would I then have to pay capital gains on that, on that money that we were supposed to be getting from the 1031? Yeah. So what you would do your allocated portion. So like, let's say you're a 1% owner in this property and there was a hundred thousand dollars in, you know, unrecaptured 1250 gain that would have resulted in a normal sale. Then you're going to end up having to pay that thousand dollars. You know, well, you'll include that thousand dollars in your unreported 12 or unrecaptured 1250 gain. So it would show up on your schedule K dash one in one of the boxes. Okay. Interesting. So it sounds sounds like something a, a CPA should kind of help me walk through in that in that regard. Right. Yeah. If you're thinking about swapping out of things, especially when things when they start doing fancy things like cost segregation studies, 1031 exchanges, uh, qualified opportunity zones, like those kind of things uh, that are much more specialized, I would highly recommend that you work with someone that's got either some experience or some really great knowledge behind. Okay. Got it. Perfect. All right, a uh, couple, two more terms I want to get into before we get into the uh, into the um, snapshot round here. So uh, you talked about depreciation and depreciation recapture. Can you kind of touch on what that actually means? Yeah, of course. So there's uh, really two main kinds of depreciation recapture. Uh, it's one is Section 1245. So that's like your tangible property, like uh, think appliances, uh, furniture, equipment, those type of things, right? Usually five or seven year class lives. So what happens is if you sell something, um, even for exactly the price that you paid for it, all the depreciation that you received from that, you're going to have to bring back into ordinary income and pay ordinary income taxes on. And then whatever is in excess of that would be the long-term capital gain. 
Now, with real estate, generally speaking, when you first buy it, you have two types of property. You have 1231 pier, which is land, because land doesn't depreciate for tax purposes. And then the 1250 property, which is the building, right? So even if the building, the real estate property has things in it, like furniture and appliances, right? You don't normally, you don't get to initially say, okay, part of the price went to this, part of the price went to that. That's where the cost segregation study comes in. But initially it's all just building. That's all it is, building 1250 property. Now, the same exact thing applies to real estate, except for it's not called 1250 depreciation recapture. That actually got phased out some years ago. Uh, now there's a thing called unrecaptured 1250, which is exactly the same thing, really. They gave it a different term and of a different part of the code, so it didn't go away. And what that is, is exactly the same thing. Whatever amounts were due to depreciation, you have to recapture that when you sell that property or dispose of it. Okay, interesting. And then, so depreciation itself, what does that mean as a sure. as a real estate investor? What does that what does that mean to you? Okay, so depreciation, uh, all it really means and what it's supposed to be for is just for the normal wear and tear of an asset. The IRS lets you recover that cost, you know, because uh, if you think about it, like let's say you buy a four million dollar property, uh, you don't get to immediately write four million dollars off just because you spent, even if you didn't, even if you paid in cash for it, right? You have to capitalize it. So over so many years, you get parts of that money as deductions back, essentially. And then, of course, when you go back to sell it later, you kind of have to pay that all back. Um, as ordinary income tax. So depreciation really is beneficial at first. Um, and it's definitely not something I wouldn't suggest you don't take because one of the caveats on a particularly 1245 or 1250 property is the depreciation recapture on that is the greater of whether you took it or how much you were supposed to take. So even if you say, all right, well, I'm just going to try to be advantageous and not take any depreciation, so I'll have to recapture it later. You still gonna have to recapture the parts that you didn't take anyway. So you're going to pay for it twice. So depreciation is a necessity. You have to take it. Okay. Excellent. All right, Brandon. Well, we're going to get into the snapshot round. A lot of great information here, but I kind of want to kind of touch on some big topics here really quick before we end the, uh, get to the end here. So that sure. sound good to you? You ready? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. All right. Here we go. Snapshot. Tube two. First question. All right, Brandon, what is the number one thing you need to know uh, tax-wise as a new investor to get started? Uh, I would say the first thing to understand would be a pro forma, understanding pro formas on properties and what the difference between pro forma and tax means. Okay, and you'll kind of elaborate, what what does a pro forma mean? Sure. So the pro forma is when you're investing, when you're looking at investing into a property, a lot of times a listing agent or the the company will set a pro forma income statement to kind of show you what you can expect for cash roll on any given property. But there's certain parts of it that don't apply to you, right? So interest. So their interest is not your interest. You're going to get a totally different loan, right? Um, You know, also too, if the property sells for higher, property taxes are probably going to go up. One minute. Uh, So yeah, if you sell for a, a higher price that probably you're going to have a higher property tax. So that's something to consider as well. And then if they are putting their own depreciation in there, their depreciation is not your depreciation. Totally different. So pro forma is useful, but not a set in stone kind of thing. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And, and uh, I've run into this a couple of times too with uh, some properties, especially if you're kind of um, looking at properties across the country. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the particular city or state might have different tax codes in that. And if they, reevaluate based off of a cell, if they reevaluate based off of, you know, every calendar year, something like that, right? So you yep. could, you know, buy a property and not see tax, the taxes go up for, you know, maybe a couple of years, or it could be immediately, right? 
Um, yep. So I see a lot of people don't factor that into their underwriting because it really could, it's really huge. It could be a huge difference for you, right? Yeah. And, I, and I ran into that in with um, one of my properties in uh, Virginia in the Norfolk area. Uh, it was mm. like, we were paying like $700 a year in taxes. And then we well, bought this nuts. property and yeah. Right. And then this property had been pretty, pretty much flipped. And, you know, suddenly we had a tax bill that was four times as high as what originally was. Right. Cause now the property yeah. was worth way more. Right. But we didn't take that into account when we were, when we were purchasing the property and, and luckily right. like we were able to absorb all that, but you know, that's just, that's just cash flow being being drained away right so um, exactly. okay so that's that's a great thing to, to point out all right so next question um what is the uh, number one thing that a real estate investor messes up when getting ready for taxes that you've seen okay so i will say self-preparation um and you know honestly i'm a little biased for that too but here's why so self-preparation you're only going to be your returns only going to be as good as you know the tax laws right so, for example, like that Section 199A deduction, most people have no idea that that's even a thing. Or if they do know it's a thing for businesses, they don't know there's special regulations for real estate in general. So, a lot of times they'll just say, oh, yeah, totally, I met, met this qualification. And then everything's deductible, right? Until you get into an audit. That's kind of what people say. <laughs> so, once you get hit with an audit and you lose everything, then that's money back out of your pocket. Uh, and the other thing is that people have almost, oh, I have very rarely met someone that didn't, that didn't mess depreciation up whether by not taking it or just saying that the whole purchase price was depreciable. Um, there's a certain way that you have to depreciate property. The, the regulations really specify that you look at the county assessor site, look at the property value and then the land value. So whatever the, the let's say the land percentage is like 14% out of all of the, the land property value, then 14% of the price you paid for it has to go to land. So only, you know, 76% or 86% of your uh, purchase price is actually even depreciable. So that could change a huge thing right there. Uh, definitely, definitely. So, so you you recommend as a new investor or an experienced investor, um, you know, what if I if I only hold one property versus a hundred properties, right? Do you you still recommend mm -hmm. getting a CPA involved doing taxes, especially since it's now business taxes and right? And all that? Okay. I would, I would, yeah. Even with one rental property, um, because there's other things too that you can take as a as a deduction that you just you don't think of, right? So like home office type of deductions or your cell phone, your internet, right? Like that's just money coming out of your pocket if you didn't think about that. So generally, I always tell people, especially when they're kind of on the fence with it, like, look, you know, that's fine if you you don't want to pay like let's say three or four hundred dollars for a tax return. Chances are pretty good I'm going to save you at least that or more in taxes based off of what I know versus what you know. You know, and that's where the value is, is that it's not an expense for someone like me. It's supposed to bring you better results, or at yeah. least more accurate results. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's, it's kind of similar to uh, hiring a, a lawyer to draft up an yes. LLC document for you, right? You could save yourself probably hundreds of dollars, right? But, you know, especially if you're doing it from out of state, you don't know what the specific wording is. You know, there's, I'm sure there's, there's certain loopholes you have to jump through, right? So, yeah, I think having... Um, in cases of taxes or legal issues, having a professional on your side is, it, in my opinion, what I've and then what I've kind of dealt with is is absolutely vital, right? It's like um, if you're going to do a syndication and not getting an SEC attorney involved and trying to do everything yourself, like you're just asking, you're asking right. for trouble, right? Um, and it's you know it's it, it may hurt you in the upfront with all the costs of trying to you know use a CPA or an attorney, but in the long run, like it could save you probably. Gosh, you're probably saving millions of dollars over your, you know, the, yeah. your real estate career and, and mistakes not made. So, 
Definitely good, good, uh, good advice there. And then uh, last question, uh, Brandon, what is your dream? So my dream, um, with, I would say my dream mostly is, is with my business. I'd like to have physical offices in a couple different States, but I like the remote workers that I have. I like the concept of hiring military spouses because yeah, I'm a veteran as well too. So it's just really neat to be able to hire mostly veteran spouses uh, or military spouses that are all over the world. So I like to be able to create a, a very large network and become a very large competitor to somebody like H&R Block uh, or Liberty Tax. So although my clientele is a little bit different than them, um, I w- I'd like to be a kind of a household name for that company and then you know, maybe sell out. Who knows? Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds great. Hey, you know, be, be uh, many fingers and many pies all over the world. That'd be awesome, man. Yeah, definitely, definitely yeah. see you getting there. So, all right, Brandon. Well, that. yeah, of course. Uh, Brandon, I appreciate having uh, you on today. Um, and I, I definitely learned a lot, um, you know, and I've, I've tried reading through the actual wording of a lot of these things mm-hmm. and the new rules for the, for the, um, uh, the, that came after 2018 and just like, it, it kind of <laughs> eyes glazed over a little bit. Right. So I'm, I'm glad you're able to add so kind of a personal face to this and kind of uh, explain sure. a lot of, of the issue or a lot of the benefits that people can get from, from real estate investing in general on the tax side of that. Um, yeah, of course. So I appreciate you answering those questions. And like I said, I, I learned a lot. So um, before we, uh, before we go, how can people get a hold of you if they want to ask you more questions or bring you sure. on as a, as a CPA? Right. Right. Okay. So if they'd like to have me prepare the taxes, uh, one of the best ways to get a hold of me is go to my website. Uh, that's bmcaccountingllc.com. Uh, or you can email me too, which is Brandon, uh, B-R-A-N-D-Y-N at bmcaccountingllc.com. Uh, I will say, especially usually about mid-December until about April, phone calls are almost impossible unless it's scheduled. So those are usually the best ways to get a hold of me is to hop on my calendar on my website or simply email me. Those are usually the quickest ways. Perfect. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely put those in the show notes. Uh, well, Brandon, I, I really appreciate you coming on. It definitely, you know, yeah, thank we've you. been kind of going back and forth on this, uh, trying to figure this out for a while. Um, so I'm glad yeah. we were able to make this work. And, uh, you know, I think these are a lot of great, you know, uh, points for people, uh, especially starting the new year. Now that tax uh, documents are going to start rolling in and right. investors are starting to wondering where their K-1s are. So, you know, I think this is really good knowledge for, for people to look at. And they still have some time to, to get a lot of these things you know, in oh, place yeah. before, before taxis. Yeah, they've got 15 March is when uh, the K-1s are, are really due because that's when the partnership's tax return is due. But if they file an extension, well, then you're kind of at the mercy of the partnership. So you'll have to file an extension too. That's just something to keep in mind for most real estate investors. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely good to know. K-1s due on March 15th. Cool. Awesome, Brandon. Well, uh, I hope you have an awesome day and uh, Thanks, yeah, we'll man. talk to you later, man. Hey, have a good one. Appreciate it, Anthony. Thanks for having me. No problem. Before you go, I want to be real for a second. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It goes a long way to promoting the show and continuing to bring you great content from stellar guests. I read every rating and it helps me to develop the best practices, give you the best possible version of me and the show. If you have comments, recommended topics, or guests, uh, reach out to me at anthony at pintocapitalinvestments.com and let's connect. Now, if you're interested in investing with us or learning more about what we do, check out our website, pintocapitalinvestments.com, to set up a free call where we can chat about your goals, your aspirations, financial dreams, or whatever you want to talk about. But that's all I have, folks. I'll catch you next time on the Lessons of Real Estate Show.